Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Sleep plays a fundamental role in brain health and function, as well as overall quality of life. So early identification and treatment of sleep disorders is crucial. However, because there are a myriad of different sleep disorders, of which many can overlap with primary neurologic conditions, diagnosis and development of an effective treatment plan can be challenging. In today's episode, we'll be discussing differential diagnosis of sleep disorders in adults. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Nancy Foldvery Schaefer join me for today's conversation. Dr. Foldvery Schaefer is director of the Sleep Disorder Center and a staff neurologist in the Epilepsy Center within Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Nancy, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Nancy, just for our listeners out there, tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you did your training, how you made your way to Cleveland. Well, I trained in neurology at Loyola in Chicago and then completed a two-year neurophysiology fellowship at Duke. Uh, and then came to the Cleveland Clinic. So I've served in both the Epilepsy Center and the Sleep Disorder Center since uh, I came many years ago. Well, it's our pleasure to have you here, and it's always great to, to chat with you. So when I'm on hospital service, I always ask the residents, I've started doing this, I always ask the residents, usually the, the first or second day that I'm on, I, I go through and I'll ask them and the medical students, how many hours did they sleep the night before? Uh, and I think probably... The average number that I'm hearing that they tell me is probably six, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is what the average is. So um, just as a background, how much sleep should they be getting? Well, sleep needs are actually genetically determined. So most of us know how much we need because we know how we feel when we don't get that magic number. The National Sleep Foundation a few years ago established new norms, and for adults, especially younger adults, the range is seven to nine hours. Uh, But again, there's variation uh, in between individuals. For older adults, that range is seven to eight hours. And certainly under the age of 18, sleep needs are much greater. Um, There was a study a few years ago that demonstrated that in the United States, about 40% of adult Americans were getting less, six hours or less um, of sleep which is significant sleep deprivation. We know that amount of sleep is associated with a host of um, social issues as well as medical and psychiatric illnesses. So maybe I shouldn't tell you how many hours I'm sleeping now, (laughs) right? The, uh, but I guess I can just say it's my genetics and I don't need to sleep as much, or maybe I'm just lying to myself and I should sleep more. You are probably lying to yourself, but in fact, sleep Need is sort of distributed along a bell-shaped curve. So while most of us fall in that seven to nine hour range, probably one to 2% of the population is genetically short sleeper, you know, four or five hours. And these folks function optimally and on measurements of function would be functioning optimally. They they don't just think they're functioning optimally. And then one to 2% are long sleepers, genetically wired to need more like nine or 10 hours of sleep. Uh, So you may be in that special one or two percent, Glenn, uh, or you may be fooling yourself. (laughs) I'm definitely fooling myself, Nancy. You know, I also, and we're not going to get into it here, but I also ask them if they know who Libby Zion is. 
uh, and why the duty hours are what they are and and the rationale and all that behind it. But but again, I think that in medicine, we don't always practice what we preach uh, in this regard. And, you know, we uh, I think the simple answer is probably really listen to your body. And if it seems to be functioning at the level that you're at, then you're probably doing okay. That's right. That's right. Although when people are very sleep deprived or sleep deprived over long periods of time, humans can misperceive how well they're functioning. And so... You know, we hear this often where uh, someone, one of our colleagues or um, someone may be uh, sleep deprived and may become more moody, you know, uh, or may become more impaired and doing small finger movements and tasks that require fine finger movements. Uh, and sometimes people don't realize that. Their loved ones may realize it. Uh, but, but we as humans are not so uh, smart at recognizing sleep deprivation in ourselves. Well, I guess that's good food for thought for everybody listening out there and can reassess, are they really in that special group or are they just fooling themselves? So uh, everybody out there, uh, take a deep dive and look at yourself. <laughs> Optimize. Right. So Nancy, I would imagine that most of us uh, have had experienced or have experienced difficulty with sleep at some point on and off for, for many different reasons. Um, but when do, does it really become a sleep problem or a difficulty or a disorder? Well, most sleep disorders are diagnosed when the symptoms have lasted at least three months. And so, for example, most adults have had a night or two in their lives of insomnia, you know, just traumatic life events or whatever the case may be, major stressors and have trouble sleeping. Uh, but when that happens... On a regular basis, say three days or nights a week for at least three months, we would consider that a chronic insomnia problem. Um, and you're right that most people know some symptoms of sleep disorders because we've all experienced them, insomnia being most common. The vast majority of adults have had nights of insomnia, and 10% of adults have chronic insomnia. Uh, almost 30% of adults have sleep apnea. So those are really the two most common uh, but there are m four other major categories of disorders uh, that most people don't even recognize that can also have uh, significant uh, morbidity. So share those with us. Yes. Those are circadian rhythm disorders, uh, the hypersomnias, so the narcolepsies and related disorders, the sleep-related movement disorders, of which restless leg syndrome is the primary, uh, and then the parasomnias, uh, REM parasomnias, REM behavior disorder, and uh, the non-REM parasomnias, which may be a little bit more benign than REM behavior disorder. And some of these disorders we now recognize are intimately associated with neurological conditions, which is why it's useful for neurologists to have a little sense of how to take a sleep history, at least how to recognize the big ones, you know, the ones that are the, the severe hypersomnia, uh, which can coexist uh, in the form of narcolepsy or a medically induced hypersomnia in some patients with neurological conditions, uh, and importantly, REM behavior disorder because its association with subsequent de development of the synucleopathies, uh, which is now a well-established um, phenomenon. And so sometimes in the sleep center, we, uh, sleep doctors see REM behavior disorder uh, and then now refer to our colleagues in uh, cognitive neurology or movement disorders uh, when we begin to see or hear about other signs and symptoms of neurological disease, uh, because often there'll be a progression into a clearly defined neurological disease. And I don't want to get off 
uh, track here too much, but certainly see a lot of information in the literature these days about sleep and uh, cognitive problems. Absolutely. This is an emerging area of uh, sleep medicine research. Sleep, particularly non-REM sleep, serves the function within the glymphatic system in our brain of clearing neurotoxins. Uh, And there have been some very eloquent studies illustrating on PET studies, accumulation of beta amyloid, uh, so the Alzheimer's protein, uh, when people are routinely sleeping six hours or less, in marked contrast to when you're sleeping seven hours or more. And so we need sleep to restore every cell in every organ of our body. And the lack of sleep is having long-term consequences. We may not realize it until way too late in the game, uh, but sleeping regularly at least seven hours in middle life is now being shown to be associated with preservation of good cognition as one ages, uh, whereas obstructive sleep apnea untreated for many years and short sleep duration for many years is being associated with mild cognitive impairment and increases the risk of Alzheimer's in otherwise predisposed individuals. So sleep care becomes a part of brain health uh, over the long haul. And I think it's just fascinating. I love science in general, but you know, it seems like it was not that long ago that we didn't even know there were actually lymphatics in the brain. Right. I mean, 10 years ago, I don't think that we knew this. That's right. The RBD story, the REM behavior disorder story, began to evolve more like 20 years ago, but rapidly evolved to now it's a standard. I mean, we now recognize that RBD, we're calling it isolated RBD instead of idiopathic RBD, because perhaps there are no cases of idiopathic RBD. All of these patients will develop neurodegeneration, unless if it's a drug-induced issue. Uh, But the cognitive story has evolved just really in the last maybe five to seven years, and it's quite fascinating and uh, critically important for all neurologists who are trying to optimize brain health in our patients of all ages. So I'm going to take a quick little sidebar because I think you might know the answer to this. I noticed you called it restless leg syndrome, and for a short period of time, they called it a different name. So the official name is back now to restless leg syndrome? I think so. It's gone back and forth, uh, named after the um, individuals who named it. I think it was just too complicated for everybody, Yeah, it was too complicated. It was too complicated. And restless leg syndrome resonates with patients. Um, oftentimes in the clinic, I just ask people, do they have restless leg syndrome? Then I go into the diagnostic criteria. But when you have it, you know you have it. Nancy, what's involved in the diagnostic workup for sleep disorders? What do you do? So it depends on what the presenting symptoms are and where we're going in terms of those six classes of disorders. The insomnia is the sleep disordered breathing, the hypersomnia is the movement disorders, the parasomnia is the circadian rhythm disorders. For example, insomnia is a clinical diagnosis, and we may do a test like actigraphy to track movement over time uh, to measure effects of therapy or to classify it, but there's no need for an in-laboratory diagnostic test. Uh, In fact, it's not needed. Same with restless leg syndrome. We may measure iron levels with restless leg syndrome and other chemistries, uh, but we would not order a sleep study unless if we're thinking of another disorder. So classically, these sleep disorders uh, like sleep apnea require an in-laboratory sleep study or a home sleep apnea test. Patients with hypersomnias that can include the narcolepsy spectrum as well as the circadian rhythm type patients may require more advanced testing overnight polysomnography that can be tailored, um, followed by a multiple sleep latency test. 
preceded by two weeks of actigraphy, urine toxicology, uh, and now we're even in the sleep center doing uh, dim light melatonin onset to measure the onset of melatonin increase uh, in saliva so that we can better confirm uh, circadian rhythm disorders, as well as even gene sites so that we can understand for narcolepsy patients uh, what their genetic metabolism is like in terms of picking and choosing medications, since we have many more medications now. Uh, one important point about your question is that many don't recognize the difference between the home sleep apnea test and the in-lab test. The home sleep test has one indication, and that is to confirm the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea really moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea when there are no other sleep disorders suggested or nothing else under consideration. That is the only thing it's good for. You've got it or you don't. If you're dealing with a patient who snores and may have sleep apnea, but they have a constellation of other symptoms, they also have insomnia or restless legs, or you don't know if they really have sleep apnea, the in-lab test is appropriate because the home test doesn't record EEG. And so we can't stage sleep during the home test. So the surrogate number that we get for respiratory events is by definition underestimated. And the benefit of a sleep diary, uh, are people truthful? Is it helpful? Is it overestimated, underestimated, or generally helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. Most of the time when we do actigraphy, which we're doing now only in the last couple of years, and it's evolving in terms of its utility in the sleep center, most of the time, actigraphy correlates pretty well with self-reported sleep diaries. We use them all the time in the sleep center. Uh, certainly our behavioral sleep medicine team, the sleep psychology team, relies on them heavily to not only estimate sleep time for patients and then guide care, but they use the diary to actually provide the next recommendation to get the patient to where they're sleeping well again. Uh, and so they can be useful we typically rely on them more for the insomnias uh, than we do for some of the other sleep disorders. But before a sleep study, particularly a comprehensive test like a PSG and an MSLT for narcolepsy, we would want to see somebody's diary in addition to actigraphy to make sure that that test is going to be valid. So you mentioned the big six. So the treatments are going to depend on which of the big six you have, but go through some of the treatments for us. Yeah. And many people have more than one of the big six, you know, so sleep apnea. It's just like going to Africa and seeing right? the big six. So. so sleep apnea commonly coexists with restless legs and insomnia. And sometimes you can't quiet down the restless legs until you've treated the sleep apnea because the patient's sleep deprived. And if they're sleep deprived, their legs are going to be acting up. There are FDA approved medications for the narcolepsies, for sure, and the hypersomnias. And this is one of the most exciting areas. We've seen three new FDA-approved drugs for narcolepsy in the last couple of years. Very exciting that they have different mechanisms of action. The newest is patolescent, a histamine agonist. Never had a histamine agonist before. Uh, certainly, we have the oxabates, uh, sodium oxabate, and now lower sodium oxabate. The mechanism of action of that is, is unclear, but it's a game-changing agent, as is patolescent for narcolepsy with cataplexy. Last year, lower sodium oxabate was the first FDA-approved drug for idiopathic hypersomnia. Critically important because this is a population of patients with high morbidity, poor quality of life, cognitive fog, you know, uh, because of their persistent daytime sleepiness. And there was no FDA-approved drug for that population before. So lots of options, emerging options uh, for people with narcolepsy. Uh, we certainly have medications that are approved for 
RLS. And the most important thing about RLS is that very often patients have coexisting deficiency of iron in the brain, and which is why we check uh, ferritin and iron levels and really use iron therapy. We're now doing iron infusions for more and more of those patients. Um, for the uh, sleep apnea patients, CPAP has been the gold standard for a long time, but we're increasingly using more oral appliances. And going back a few years ago, the FDA approved hypoglossal nerve stimulation. So we have a growing number of patients getting implanted with hypoglossal nerve stimulation. The FDA indication on age recently reduced to 18, and they're working on a pediatric indication for hypoglossal nerve stimulation. So exciting stuff there. And... Uh, Gosh, there are no FDA-approved drugs for the parasomnias, but we're really learning a lot about the parasomnias, particularly REM behavior disorder. Uh, and the AASM, there's a task force that will release new guidelines for therapy around RBD. Circadian disorders are also difficult to treat, but there's the first ever multi-center trial for a circadian rhythm drug specifically for delayed sleep phase, and we are actually going to be opening our site for that drug. So lots of new things happening in sleep. We still have some of the old standards and in the insomnia drugs that we've used for a long time uh, and CPAP, but things are really evolving on all fronts. Talk a little bit about behavioral therapies. So behavioral therapies are very important to most patients with sleep disorders, but they've been most well-developed for the insomnias. Uh, so we call this Team Behavioral Sleep Medicine, BSM. Uh, we've got psychologists in our group, uh, and there are psychologists around the country who are BSM certified, and most of what they do is behavioral therapy around insomnia. Uh, we developed, actually Michelle Dreyroup, who leads our BSM team, developed Go to Sleep, uh, which is a computerized web-based uh, BSM therapy, CBTI, we call it, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. Very effective, probably as effective as individual therapy over a period of time. Uh, and this includes a number of different strategies, ranging from simple awareness of sleep hygiene, good sleep hygiene, to things we call cognitive therapy, sort of resetting in the patient's mind what normal sleep is, Many people with chronic insomnia have that perception that I must sleep eight hours again, and not everybody really is physiologically, you know, required to sleep eight hours. Uh, and then, of course, therapy around what we call stimulus control, managing the bedroom and uh, making sure you're not using your bed for anything other than sleep and one other thing. Guess what that is, Dr. Stevens? But not reading and not watching TV and, you know, not watching your phone because those are all things that then condition the brain to continue to not sleep well. Uh, so this is a very effective treatment. Uh, one of our, my other colleagues, Alicia Roth, is now developing cognitive behavioral therapy for hypersomnia disorders, uh, because we know that many of our chronic sleep disorder patients have poor quality of life. They're chronically um, not achieving the milestones that their, their friends and their family members are. And so with that comes uh, mood disorders and just challenges functioning uh, optimally every day. Well, I'll give a shout out to your group because I had a patient that had a very complicated sleep disorder, difficulty, a lot of problems with the sleep-wake cycle, and the psychologist changed the uh, patient's life. Yeah, it can be very impactful. It actually is hard work. On the surface, it might not seem like it's, it's very hard, but our, our BSM colleagues work very hard over a long period of time, and a motivated patient is almost always going to gain from that experience. Mm -hmm. 
But you know, that's what makes our program so strong and unique. We are very fortunate here in the Neurological Institute to have a multidisciplinary sleep program uh, where providers from various different disciplines come together. Most of my colleagues in the sleep center have very unique niches. Uh, We just talked about the behavioral sleep medicine team. We've got a pulmonary team, a neurology team. And even within that neurology team, we've got specialists in the parasomnias and the hypersomnias and other medical conditions like the overlap between sleep and epilepsy, which has been my passion for a long time. Uh, But not to forget the the contributions of our family medicine and internal medicine colleagues, uh, our psychiatry team along with our our psychologists and our pediatric team. And we collaborate closely with our colleagues in the Head and Neck Institute, both dentistry as well as uh, surgery. Um, And together, it's really a formidable team uh, capable of of managing from the simplest, commonest uh, sleep disorders to very challenging sleep disorders that often coexist with other serious health conditions, including neurological conditions. So maybe there's not a hard or fast rule for these things, but Caffeine, when should we cut it off? It really depends on the individual. So I know patients who, people who can drink caffeine up till 10 o'clock at night and it doesn't bother them at all. Uh, But certainly for the patient with any kind of sleep disruption and certainly for the insomniac, it should be cut off before noontime or by noontime. Exercise? Exercise is important for health and wellness. It's important for good sleep too. Uh, But rigorous exercise within a couple hours of bedtime is probably going to be stimulating. So we suggest that that happens before 7 p.m. or so. And eating? Yeah, eating also um, is variable. But most of us who eat close to bedtime um, either get some reflux or have more fragmented sleep. And so it's better if your biggest meal of the day is going to be dinner, it probably should be three to four hours before bedtime. Maybe we need to use the European model where our big meal is at lunch, right? That's right. Less of that. What about our friend melatonin? You know, my patients love the melatonin. Uh, What's the data? Is it helpful, not helpful? So melatonin is not consistently demonstrated to be helpful for insomnia. And most people use it for insomnia or they just use it because they think it's going to help them sleep better. Where melatonin clearly is helpful is in the circadian rhythm disorders. But when it's administered, for example, for people who are night owls, it needs to be administered in a fairly low dose and early. So three, four, five hours before one's intended bedtime or one's existing bedtime in order to shift sleep. So oftentimes people who come to the sleep center are taking melatonin incorrectly. Melatonin is not FDA approved because it's not a prescription drug, but it's not approved formally for use for REM behavior disorder. But we'll see in the new guidelines that it is one of the drugs that can be very effective for REM behavior disorder. And then in that case, the doses are higher, up to 15 milligrams at bedtime. Wow. So Nancy, I know you mentioned several uh, novel treatments. Any other novel treatments that we bypassed? I know you went through a lot of things. Anything else that I forgot to ask you about that's coming up? Yeah, there's more clinical trials coming up with devices, uh, oral appliance devices for sleep apnea. Uh, we will be seeing other modifications of the hypoglossal nerve stimulator for sure. There is uh, data on pediatric Down syndrome patients for hypoglossal nerve stimulation. And uh, these multiple clinical trials, a couple of which are orexin agonists. So for narcolepsy, 
specifically narcolepsy type 1, classic narcolepsy with cataplexy. We know that this is a disease caused by autoimmune destruction of the hypocretin or orexin secreting neurons in the hypothalamus. Now there are trials ongoing with orexin agonists uh, to augment that orexin signaling again, which is an important neurotransmitter that augments or raises the alertness level and augments the neurotransmitters that are already working on wakefulness. And so this probably also will be game-changing therapy for people with the hypersomnia, specifically narcolepsy. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been insightful as always, and we look forward to uh, hearing about all these new applications and medications that are coming up. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.